0: Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Uh, hope everyone's having a good day. It's a little earlier in the day uh, for, for this, as we've been doing uh, some of them later in the uh, afternoon, uh, especially for East Coast times. A little housekeeping to start. Uh, as always, if this is your first time on Myriad Oncology Live, I mean, it's just essentially an open door. Uh discussion we do uh, them theme based uh, but they are meant for your education uh, and just discussion if anything's on your mind um, we try to stick to the theme but you don't have to if you have uh, today's theme is uh, polygenic risk scores but hey if you want to talk about pal B2 that's fine um, it's up to you uh, you know we have some uh, some guests on today um, and thanks for uh, joining Holly so <laughs> we have Holly Peterson uh, she just joined from uh, she's at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, we also, let me see who else is on. We should have Alicia and Jerry. Uh, Jerry is our chief scientific officer, and Alicia is our head of biostatistics. Um, or maybe Alicia couldn't join, actually. Uh, I see Jerry, so thank you for coming on. Um, and, uh, and we may have uh, Alexander Gutin, also known as Sasha, um, pop on as well. Uh, So we have a a good arsenal of uh, folks to talk about all things polygenic risk score related. Um, And and then next week, uh, actually, is going to be a really good one uh, if you have time in your schedule. Uh, It's going to be survivorship. Uh, We have uh, two cancer survivors uh, coming on, Uh, one uh, uh, who had, unfortunately, pancreatic cancer about 15 years ago. Uh, and another uh, one of the first uh, BRCA1 uh, carriers tested in this country uh, in the 90s. Uh, So it should be really exciting. We'll have a a really lively show. Um, And the schedule's built into July. I'll probably post uh, some new uh, topics and times soon. Uh, Other housekeeping, we have um, Shelly, I do see that you're on. Uh, I don't uh, uh, know if you want to do any presenting, but let me know. Uh, But uh, we have uh, Lauren uh, Giannotti, who is uh, helping um, with the chat today. Um, And uh, Lauren, I haven't seen that you're on, but yeah, oh, yeah, I did see that you're on. So, yeah, great. Thank you so much. So, um, you know, if, if, again, this is your first time, I mean, uh, essentially, we like a lively show. So, you know, definitely unmute yourself, ask questions. Um, If you don't want to unmute yourself and ask questions and something's on your mind, just feel free to put it in the chat and uh, we'll make sure it's addressed, Um, you know, so you can you can privately chat to uh, Lauren um, is a pretty easy way. also, before I forget, since I constantly do, uh, you know, about five uh, or so shows ago, uh, we did start recording these. Uh, we are posting now the audio and I'll show you what we're doing with it. So everybody's uh, uh, knowing uh, what what's going on. But um, if you go to the Inside the Genome podcast, which uh, is a podcast that I do, which I think we just put a new, Yeah, we just eh, we have some new ones up. This one uh, is with Annie Parker. So she'll. And will actually be on the show next week. So um, but if you want to get a little backstory, there's about a 15 minute podcast. So we just posted that one. But then all these MOL uh, podcasts that just got posted, um, these are from Mirrored Oncology Live. So we're just literally taking the audio and then just putting it up. Um, but, you know, it is editable. If anyone has any concerns, please let me know. This is essentially just to make sure that, you know, people we constantly get requests to um, you know, hey, I can't make this time. You know, is this available? Can I listen to it? You know, I think people ideally would want it in uh, you know some ter- sort of video format, but that uh, brings up other complexities. You know, without getting um, you know consent to show faces and things like that. So um, yeah, hopefully this is a nice resource. And honestly, I was listening to some of these uh, the other day, and and this one in particular, I, I just I went back to the uh, LGBTQ uh, plus. Uh, podcast and I found it incredibly <laughs> entertaining. I mean, because sometimes when when I'm uh, you know doing these or you know when people are actually interacting, um, you know, as hosts and things, or co-host, uh, you know, you can't really pay attention as much, and you're you're trying to you know organize everything so it comes out smoothly. Um, and when I went back and listened to that, I was like, man. This is- it was NPR quality. So <laughs> I really appreciate, uh, Lauren in particular, uh, she helped put this one together. Uh, uh, and, uh, Rob Finch, uh, helped immensely there. And, uh, that's a, that's a great one. If anyone wants to go back and listen, but they're all great. They're all fantastic. <laughs> um, so let me stop sharing my, uh, screen real quick. Um, and so, oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, Shelly is, uh, yeah, doing a few other things, uh, but she will listen in. So I did want to start off the show, um, you know, today, just with a little bit of background. And this was a deck that uh, Shelly had put together. Um, She has some expertise in uh, polygenic risk score across um, uh, different diseases. So let me, uh, hmm, hopefully this looks all right. No, that's not, let me reshare, sorry. I lost it. Let me pull this back up because I think it helps uh, frame where the field's at right now, which is which is nice. Okay. See, this is this is exactly the reason I can't really listen to these well until after because I'm doing ten million things. Um, all right, can everybody see that? You can, can see the PowerPoint,
1: see but if you want yeah. to put it in presenter mode.
0: Yes. Great. And I'll switch it. Okay, so here's the presenter mode. I am Perfect. not Shelley Cummings. That's <laughs> I uh, play her on this show, at least for today. Uh, so yeah, Shelley has been, uh, uh, she uh, helped with this article in particular, um, uh, this Yanes article, uh, and she has a, a few sl- uh, slides in the back about uh, walk through. Uh, quickly, but it's a great article uh, just about kind of state of the union of polygenic risk score. And, you know, if you're at ASCO, you know, ACMG, ASHG, um, you know, you're starting to see just a flood of polygenic risk score uh, data come out. I mean, if you look at, you know, common, uh, you know, journals in our space right now for at least the uh, gen epi side, um, yeah, the uh, polygenic risk scores are all over the place, uh, across a host of, uh, diseases, not just, uh, cancer. So, you know, this is just a, a very quick, just snapshot. Uh, and it's more just kind of like, boom, like, you know, these are all the things going on, um, right now. Um, you know, I went back and I was looking at even things just you know 2019 and above um and it's pretty jaw-dropping these days even just in our in our breast cancer space um and there's some really good articles um to put on uh, people's radars um you know some of these are, are just excellent prospective studies you know at, at very large cohorts uh you know large Finnish cohort of 122,000 people this was a great study uh, mars it was in uh, nature communication at the end of last year uh, nurses health study here. This was uh, with uh, Graham Kolditz um, and uh, excellent study looking at a uh, 77 uh, SNP PRS, uh, this genetics and medicine, um, Dutch prospective cohort. Simba just did a, another one uh, that was um, uh, Barnes uh, 2020 uh, looking also, I was a, an author on this one too, uh, looking at BRCA1 and 2 um, PV modification um you know here's some other uh kind of larger case controls uh that came out over the last year or two uh you know becac which is a, a large international consortium uh, for uh, breast cancer uh did a very large study this mavadot study is excellent i really like this one because um it compared three different prs's um it really showed that you know interestingly People think more SNPs are better. I mean, clearly they are. It's kind of the same argument of you know, you know, are more genes better? Well, sometimes. I mean, it kind of depends on what the genes are and everything uh, for hereditary uh, cancer testing. But uh, you know, it, it, the argument is interesting uh, when you look at it in SNPs because if you keep adding SNPs, yeah, you just get kind of an incremental benefit at some point. Uh, there, there just seems to be this core set of about you know, seventy. You know, even you could argue almost fifty. And then after that, it just becomes kind of an incremental benefit, um, you know, adding up uh, more SNPs on top. Um, these two papers were uh, from um, our team. Um, the, this uh, JC, both were in JCO precision oncology, which is a little confusing. Um, one was uh, validating uh, the 86 SNP score that we use uh, commercially. Um, and then this one combined, this one re- just came out and this one included that uh, but then brought in uh, Tyre Cusick uh, as well uh, as the base platform. Um, and then we've been looking at, you know, European, you know, this is a, a big topic, you know, we're, we're, our, you know, SNP data to date uh, for polygenic risk score has been largely uh, derived from women of European ancestry. So people have been looking at, you know how this current SNPs, uh, you know, function for people of other ancestries. I mean, if you think about it, you know, BRCA1, two, ATM, check two. You know, these genes were uh, largely found, um, you know, in European cohorts, but then you know adapted to risk in other cohorts. Um, you know, similar things are going on with SNPs. Uh, you know, it does seem like these are major SNPs across all ancestries for the most part. Uh, clearly, there's uh, some uniqueness to other ancestries uh, for specific SNPs, uh, and uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this area, for sure. Uh, but there's some good ones here. I mean, this this uh, paper looked at, um, you know, European and uh, Asian individuals. This was a, a U.S. Uh, Latina uh, population um, by uh, Susan Neuhausen and Elad Ziv. Um, yeah. And... And then you know I kind of alluded a little bit to this uh, a little bit ago that there was uh, you know our, our one paper internally showed you know adding tire cues again as a base model and then putting PRS on top of that that you get a little bit of a better model fit and uh, that's you know people are, are looking um, you know at other clinical and family history variables that you can really lay as a, a base foundation and then bring um, polygenic risk score on top and it continues to hold up that. Uh, probably one of the biggest things is uh, family history. I mean, SNP SNP, uh, uh, polygenic risk scores are changing pretty substantially by uh, family history. Um, And uh, it's been well-documented at this point. Um, You know, really when you're looking now at polygenic risk score studies, um, ideally you wanna see how, you know, family history was taken into account, um, you know, in whatever model that was used. Uh, This is becoming incredibly important. And, and that's what's being shown here. I mean, there's uh, these two figures, C and D. Uh, both are uh, polygenic risk score, 10-year absolute risk uh, by the, um, uh, you know, how, um, I guess, significant somebody's polygenic risk score is, you know, unfavorable versus favorable. And uh, you can see that if you have a family history of uh, breast cancer, your risk goes up even with the same polygenic uh, risk score. So you do have to take all this into account. Uh, Colon cancer uh, has been um, uh, similarly following pace. Uh, You know, I think breast cancer is really leading the space right now. Um, You know, prostate cancer, I have some on as well. Colon cancer is, you know, moving pretty quickly. Uh, There's about a um, a set of about 140 SNPs that have been, uh, are starting to become a little bit more commonplace now uh, being looked at in uh, colorectal cancer in different populations. Uh, So there's some good studies uh, in that context. Colon cancer is interesting because I was thinking about it the other day. I mean, breast, breast cancer, we have, um, you know, we have pretty good base models. Uh, and this is just me talking at this point. This is the way I'm thinking about some of this, but we have pretty good base models of, you know, what is a high-risk high woman with breast cancer, lifetime risk? What is a low risk? You know, if, if someone's high risk, what do you do with that? Um, you know, do you do more intensive screening, et cetera. Colon cancer, we really don't have that set up as nicely formed, I would say. I mean, right now we don't have, I mean, if you think about, you know, all the models that we have in breast cancer, you know, Gale, Tyra you know, Canris or Puada, say, all these, uh, you know, colon cancer doesn't have, you know, that same kind of clinical usage of those types of models. Um, and really the, the, the current major recommendation is just to model screening based on family history of colon cancer. Like if you go to the NCCN guidelines, it's based on, you know, whether you have a family history of colon cancer when you start colorectal cancer screening in the interval um, and things. So uh, we, we need some work here because, you know, if, if we don't have really widely accepted base models, then it, it means that as polygenic risk score comes in and we start understanding like, okay, this person is twofold risk or this person's threefold risk, like we are in breast cancer, we then don't really have a um, an easy platform to adapt that to what it would actually mean for their screening. So I think there's a decent amount of work to be done. Um, you know, and, and you could argue the same for prostate cancer. And, and maybe this has been some of the, uh, you know, uh, prostate has been, you know, something that we know there's significant, uh, snip load, uh, that, uh, adds up in a polygenic risk score that does seem to modify someone's risk for prostate cancer. However, again, it's kind of that tricky thing where it's like, well, we recommend, you know, prostate cancer screening any, anyways, based on either, you know, if you're high risk, if your your family history, uh, or, uh, you know, you get yearly, uh, screening, even if you're at average risk, uh, every year after 50. So, Uh, we have to kind of work out the clinical utility, I think, of of some of um, these polygenic risk scores uh, more than others. Uh, And this is just a a chart. Again, you know, Shelly gave it. It was uh, Steve Chanick, uh, courtesy. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Chanick. Um, and, uh, looking at, uh, you know, that there's about, uh, you know, almost 200 SNPs. I mean, essentially all of these, uh, diseases, multifactorial diseases have, uh, hundreds of SNPs, uh, and, it, you know, I don't think there's a, a perfect SNP set, uh, by any means, but, uh, more work to be done, but clearly, you know, when you're, when you're looking at some of the literature, I mean, you know, you have a very small single Mendelian gene, uh, risk of, you know, BRCA1, 2, Hoxb13, et cetera. And then you know a lot of the excess familial risks, uh, similar to other diseases, seems to be coming from uh, polygenic risk to, to a large extent. Um, and uh, there's some uh, other prostate uh, literature that's uh, been recently coming out, courtesy of Shelley. So thank you very much. And um, and then you know even beyond cancer, uh, which we've been just focusing on, I mean you're starting to see you know, not only genome-wide association studies that have been going on for a long time, but now the fruits of those genome-wide association studies, you know, which really helped lay the foundation for finding select SNPs. Now you're adding all those SNPs together and you're trying to figure out, you know, risk because, you know, taken alone, you know, one SNP that that may just increase your risks, uh, you know, very minimally uh, for a particular disorder, you know, it's hard to argue that you need that, you know, someone needs specific testing for that. However, if you uh, add up a bunch of those, and now you start getting a larger effect size, um, you know that's where the polygenic risk scores are uh, having some utility. So, you know we're starting them in, We're seeing them come into uh, you know uh, psych disorders. Um, cardiology is actually moving uh, pretty rapidly, uh, trying to understand who's at much higher risk for atherosclerosis um, and cardiovascular events. Um, and this is uh, I do want to point people, I, I, this is a very good article um, that uh, Shelley was the, the last author on. Uh, Yanes is the first author, and this is in uh, uh, Human Molecular Genetics in 2020. Um, and it really goes through, you know, by cancer type, by disease type, um, you know, really, uh, you know, nicely, you know, kind of what are the things we're thinking about, you know, what are some of the monogenic diseases, um, you know what, populations have been studied for the polygenic risk score, you know, what are the kind of like base platforms that can be improved upon, you know, cost benefit, you know, LC, uh, which is uh, ethical, legal, um, and, uh, and then clinical trials that are currently going on for some of these, uh, you know, many people have heard of at least wisdom, but there are a few other ones going on for breast cancer right now, um, you know, that, that we'll probably start seeing some results of uh, sooner. And then, you know, cardiac disease as well, you know, uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder also laid out here. So yeah, there's just a, a ton going on. Uh, here's some uh, select cardiovascular references as well for coronary artery disease. So, uh, so I'll end there. Uh, I just wanted to give a little background of, you know, where the field's at. So thank you, Shelly, uh, for putting that together. I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. I did see the, the chat. Um, uh, Lauren's uh, keeping busy. Sorry, Lauren. <laughs> okay. So she's, uh, she uh, has been putting a lot of uh, the, the uh, citations. So I'll, I'll stop there and just, uh, you know, pause for questions, just general thoughts about polygenic risk scores across ancestors, uh, not ancestries, across diseases. Um, you know, I didn't mention, but the reason I just uh, stumbled and said across all ancestors is because we had a Uh, ASCO um, presentation um, uh, recently that uh, was uh, looking at polygenic risk scores across ancestries. We can certainly get into that um, if if people want. Um, And Holly's on as well. She was uh, uh, the person giving that talk if anyone saw it. So uh, thank you, Holly, again. Um, So let's see, so any chat, anything on the chat, Lauren?
1: No not questions? yet. So
0: we'll just kind of not, no up.
1: questions yet from the chat um, at this point. Yeah. I think it would be interesting, you know, PRS, obviously you've illustrated and Shelly Illustrated is is in many different, not only cancer types, but disease states. Um, and I might wonder if anybody can comment if they've used PRS in other fields other than what we have used it for. You know, obviously, we have risk score if anybody has experience using PRS elsewhere. Um, Just because I think it's interesting that there is some commentary in NCCN about the utility, um, but I'm wondering if others um, have other commentary on it as well, utility. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and we are starting to see It move into certain guidelines. Like there was a recent, um, I, I didn't even know this was coming out, um, um, Mark Tiskowitz uh, put together a ACMG guideline on uh, PALB2 mutation carriers and, and management. And if you go take a peek at it, um, you'll see a whole section on uh, PRS and discussion of um, using that as a consideration to modify um, PALB2 mutation carrier risk using say, um, which is now called CAN risk. Uh, so it's a, a nice article. Yeah, and, and Holly, I mean, since you're on, um, um, you know, I was just wondering your kind of general thoughts on the field. I mean, you're external, you're, you know, seeing patients <laughs> weekly. Um, you know, what, what, uh, I, where do you think this whole field's going? You've been, you've been an advocate for a while. Yeah,
2: so I work at Cleveland Clinic, I run the high risk breast center there. uh, And we do diagnostics, high risk identification and management and long term survivorship care. Um, You know, you mentioned that, that there are a lot of breast models, but you know, none of them are really very good. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we use a lot of them. um, And uh, are reassured by, by our stratification to what it is. But, you know, the reality of it is that 70 to 75% of women who get breast cancer don't have family history or any identifiable risk factors. And so, yeah. you know, until we really delve into uh, this type of risk stratification, and in my opinion, um, breast density, which I really, I really do think plays a large role. Um, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to have effective risk models. Um, was that, was that paper by Mark, the JCO, moderate risk gene one, or is that a different paper?
0: Um, Robson? The, uh, you're saying one I was showing you. Oh, the Palby 2. Um, 2 It was uh, Mark Titskowitz is the first author. Oh,
2: Mark Tishkowitz. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was Mark Robson. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a good uh, paper. Um, and, you know, I'll show this.
2: Yeah, send that one to me. But um,
0: yeah, anyways,
2: no, no, no. you know, patients are clamoring for this information. And uh, I bring up the, the conceptual idea of polygenic risk score and share with them the, you know, the, the lovely hill graph from the Gallagher paper. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, it's a really patient-friendly way of explaining the, the substratification of risk among carriers and non-carriers. Yeah,
0: I can find and, that uh, real quick.
2: Yeah, I've I've got a you know a copy of it, just a, a paper copy that I can mm-hmm. show. A,
0: yeah, I have it here. I, I
2: literally it. just use it in my clinic. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, it
0: is one of the nicer f- figures. Uh, yeah, this was a really pre nice, pre TJ nice at myriad. It was whoever whoever designed it was was thinking very well.
2: <laughs> yeah, so so you know, I mean. My, I, I literally get messages in my in basket every day saying, you know, when can I get this test? When will this be available? Am I the right kind of person for this test? It, it's a very, uh, you know, patients are interested in it, and I, I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna change stratification at all levels, you know, mm-hmm. at women at the highest risk and women at, at average risk, and and I, I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, uh, there I it is. To see it. yeah this is uh, what Holly was just uh, referencing, so, um, you know, you have non-carriers here, um, and uh, this is the paper, it's probably hard to see, I can throw it in presenter mode real quick, there, um, yep, yeah. uh, See, now I lost it. All right, that's gonna be hard. (laughs) I might just, I'll just go back. But um, yeah, you can, let's see if I can make it a little bit bigger though. Yeah, but you, yeah, there you go. Um, Yeah, so the risk, I mean, you can see non-carriers fall about 10%, so on average. So, you know, and the way I think about it is, you know, if you have a more favorable polygenic risk score, meaning that, you know, you have more favorable SNPs, uh, you know, pushing you towards not getting breast cancer, you would tend to fall down um, this area. And, uh, if you're a non-carrier with an unfavorable polygenic risk score, yeah, you're going to fall up in here and you do, we did see top out, you know, and this has become pretty consistent throughout studies, usually in the high thirties, it's rare to see somebody much higher. I mean, in our cohort, uh, very few, uh, like 0. 0.5, 0.6% will be above uh, really high risk, like 50% kind of risk, um, and then, and then this paper kind of shows a nice distribution of you know what you would expect to see with check two, PALB2, and BRCA one and two. And people can keep this figure in their mind. I, I, there was a paper published yesterday. I'll come back to uh, if we have some time at the end.
2: Yeah, I, I had a you know my first one of my first patients with PRS was a, a young woman who, forty years old, first visit, first mammogram, but she had gone in for testing. Um, her mother had had breast cancer at 42 and she had my risk panel testing, which was negative and had a risk score of 42%, which was really, you know, unusual. And it was, it was one of those situations where, you know, I sent her over to imaging um, and, and then I planned to see her back uh, and gave me a little bit of time to kind of decide what I was going to do with her. And of course she had cancer on her first mammogram. So,
0: yeah. you know,
2: that, that
0: <laughs> kind That's of what makes, we've, we've makes heard anecdotally a actually a bunch of those. Yeah. Where, where we've had, you know, people have uh, chimed in that, uh, even, you know, our president, um, of myriad, I mean, she had a very high risk score and, um, you know, ended up having, a DCIS uh, at time, you know, and we've, we've heard uh, that uh, from uh, multiple external people. Now, again, you're probably not going to hear, <laughs> we're probably not going to hear of the people that get screened and don't have anything, but um, you know, it is, it is a little bit, you know, saying that we're, I think on the right track with, with all of this. And so in clinic, I mean, you're, you're using it. Um, are, you know, what do you think about the carrier modification? I mean, like we just showed um, uh, you know, commercially, oh, there's this check to it.
2: Yeah. You know, I think that um, there are so many women trying to make decisions, uh, m- you know, even about MRI, you know, much less preventive medication and uh, mm-hmm. less frequently about surgery, that the people who are making decisions about surgery are are those who already have, you know, a, a more likely than not risk of getting breast cancer throughout their lifetime. And and so you're already having that discussion, but I think it's going to be really useful for the, you know, for the 85% of patients who are on the fence about taking preventive medication that, that we talk to every day and um, diligence about their screening, you know, in terms of, um, of women who are at high risk, but also, you know, now that we have the opportunity to offer abbreviated MRI or fast MRI to women with increased density, uh, if those women are identified as having a a higher than normal PRS, you know, they may be more likely to stay on top of of that type of screening, so mm-hmm. you know, I think across the board, it's it's clinically going to be so useful. But in terms of carrier substratification, um, I think that we're going to see the most utility in the the check two and the ATM populations. You know, yeah. where where it, you know it really is such a widespread and and uh, it could really be helpful for them. I mean,
0: and you're gearing up a study um, as we were talking that's on chemo prevention. I'm trying to remember yeah, exactly. So yeah.
2: we will be participating with Mayo Clinic um, in a study called Genre 2. Uh, and it's a study looking at um, at the PRS and its aid in helping women make decisions about chemo prevention. And, you know, these are already women who are at very high risk, you know, gene carriers or women with a 10 year risk per the TC model of 8%. It's really quite high. Uh, so they're, they're women in whom we would be recommending consideration of chemo prevention anyway. It's not a, you know, not, not a, a a population that that wouldn't already be offered offered the opportunity so to see whether the prs helps them in that decision then I, you know i think it's a, a slam dunk that it will you know yeah um yeah, but definitely. that'll be nice to show and of course we'll learn a lot more with that data it'll be a 10-year prospective uh, oh. study with you know a lot of information that's collected over time so
0: yeah, um, that's a great study. Yeah. That's exactly what we need. And I think yeah. um, um, Fergus, and maybe you were on it. Uh, I just saw a paper on chemo prevention attitudes um, by PRS. Um,
1: Ooh, a couple I of weeks didn't ago. That one. Yeah,
0: it wasn't too long ago. Um, yeah.
1: Hey, TJ, if you're um, thinking of looking for that paper, I wanted to just grab some questions from the chat for Dr. Peterson, if that was okay. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, I I will look for that other paper. I just saw it.
1: Okay. Dr. Peterson, we had a question. It was a little bit further back. So you probably have already alluded to this a little bit, but um, Bryn directly asked, do you change clinical treatment or practice based on PRS? And I would add to that based on PRS in terms of um, an unaffected patient with no check to and then I would also ask on of also check to modification what does that look like for your patients yeah so um,
2: the PRS and and this is a really important point do I change management I provide information to the patient so that she can make the best informed choice uh, given the information that she has. And this is another piece of information uh, that needs to be carefully communicated and put in the context of of the rest of her personal and family history. Um, And so I think, it's, I think it's really critical that we, that we remain non-directive just as we are with discussions around risk-reducing mastectomy, uh, that we use this in, in a way where we provide the information and the risk data and help women to make their own decisions.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I think it's, um, I really agree with you to the point of it's a piece of information that we have to present, and it's important to present. As a genetic counselor, um, you know, what we're describing to the patient, giving to the patient is only a piece of it, and so what's interesting in my conversations with genetic counselors versus the breast surgeon or the medical oncologist is that Genetics is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the end-all be-all. And there's other factors that have to be considered when making a decision. And there have been a lot of patients who have decided differently than when I met with them because of other factors that were going on that were not part of my consult because they were just not in my purview. Um, So I do agree with that that statement. Um, There was just some other comments in the chat thinking about protective SNPs, um, and I think anybody that's gotten a risk score knows that when you get a PRS score, it it's, doesn't mean the patient's risk is always going to be high. Um, I think that that's a misconception that I see a lot with different, different people I'm interacting with, but there definitely are protective SNPs and comparative to Tyra Cusick, there are patients that their risk score will be lower. And I don't know if you can speak to your experience with that as well, Dr. Peterson.
2: I think that, you know, you know, we do see that, we do see that there are, there's, you know, certainly a, a, not a downstaging, but a, you know, a reduced estimation of their risk uh, as a result of the PRS. And, and that, you know, that can be very reassuring to a patient. You know, I think that, you know, you brought up the check two spectrum and, you know, we, we often we're offering patients uh, an estimate of 30% uh, risk over their lifetime, but with this substratification, it could be 6.6% or 70%. And that's just a huge spread. And so that's a you know an example of where it really could be significantly reduced. And it's been shown with ATM that, you know, a good proportion are reduced in risk. Um, And in the average risk population, I think it's going to be interesting from a public health standpoint uh, to identify very low risk women and and counsel them appropriately about risk based screening. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's it's uh, it's an interesting point in terms of of lowered risk.
0: Yeah, in our cohort, we we you know we tend to see obviously it's biased. You know, we we clearly are seeing a you know largely weighted family history of cancer, personal family history of cancer. So, when we look at our cohort, uh, we see about a third of people with a risk score over thirty percent. But yeah, I mean, you know, getting to this conversation, um, a lot do go down, and I'm I'm going to share this really good figure um, that uh, let me it up uh, i mean that,
2: anyone anyone i go out to dinner with and and talk about this presentation or this testing you know wonders wonders if they can do it in, mm-hmm. regardless of their risk level
0: yeah this is a uh, courtesy i guess of pat whitworth i would say because he was the one that kept he he wanted this figure and at first i didn't understand his mindset originally when he reached out and he was like, Can I, you know, can you help me put together this? And uh and it it came together beautifully. So it's it's now a figure it's that I terrible DJ. I, so. I don't
2: know. <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh very, very uh, nice uh, for the, the folks that we're working on. But uh essentially this was some data from um the paper reference down here, which is um uh the Hughes uh uh, 2021 paper. Now, this one looks at tyracusic uh, risk uh, compared to this is tyracusic uh, plus polygenic risk score. So the, the CR means combined risk score. So tyracusic plus uh, polygenic risk and it shows the flow. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of people don't change. I mean, you know, if mm-hmm. you run their tyracusic and then run their PRS, I mean, you know, a lot, you know, 88% if you're under 20% lifetime risks are not going to change you know if you're over a 20% lifetime risk uh, you know uh, 71% are going to change but i do uh, a bunch do change kind of in and that's what's nicely shown here in this flow uh, and i think this is called a Luvia diagram i it could be mispronounced all right a, i get it yeah, now it's a, it's a nice diagram and so it shows, you know, if you had a tire risk uh, above 20%, uh, you know, uh, a third of those individuals will flow into a lower lifetime risk based on our data uh, from the cohort. And then um, and this was uh, the performance cohort of 32,000 people. And then similarly, if you had a lower than uh, 20% lifetime risk, about 12% of those individuals went up. And then, if you really add these two together, it actually ends up being about a fifth of people end up switching around that twenty percent threshold. So, well,
2: it's so reminiscent of Oncotype, you know, where Mm -hmm. where people who you thought were low risk, you know, about those same percentages were reclassified both up and down. Yeah, good point. Yeah, um, you know, it, it it it's biology, and you know, it and. It took a while for the medical oncology community to accept Oncotype, and I think that um, it's likely that uh, we're going to be facing that same sort of resistance or, you know, um, barrier to understanding um, with with this biologic test as well uh, going forward. But
0: yeah, no, agreed um what other kind of questions do we have in the chat i saw a few different things that we should make sure we're addressing is are we have about 15 minutes left um yeah i worry about true negatives and michelle i mean feel free to unmute yourself um um oh, i think you have trouble unmuting if i remember but um no, I'm,
1: I'm unmuted
0: oh okay yes thank you uh um, so- what, what were you getting at with that true negative question
2: So um, I'm BRCA positive and both of my daughters are true negatives, but I feel like we have that population of people that could still be at higher risk. You know, my oldest daughter's in her late thirties and has never had children. So what is really her true risk of getting breast cancer as a true negative for BRCA? And then I posted another question after that. So then I have my mom who's been a smoker and an alcoholic most of her life and my maternal uncle who's been a smoker alcoholic meth addict and both of them are BRCA positive my uncle died at 75 from his stroke from his meth but my mom's still living and'll be 80 next week so what's been protective for them mm-hmm. with their lifestyle choices that they've never had cancer
0: yeah you, you she, teed me up well for uh, this, I will, this was the other paper that I kind of alluded to earlier. Um, this came out, I think yesterday. Um, so probably not many people have seen it. It's a really, I thought it was a nice, uh, well-written paper. It's uh, Peter Kraft is the last author. Um, and uh, it's looking at <clears throat> uh, very similar to that first mm-hmm. thing that we were showing uh, just by uh, modification. They didn't put as beautiful of a picture in that, I will say. <laughs> but uh, uh, this goes through, yeah, risk uh, uh, modification of uh, BRCA1 and 2, ATM, CHECK2, and PALB2 carriers uh, by polygenic risk score. So, you know, essentially, you know, if you if you have no family history of breast cancer, uh, and you you know, just what you just brought up, Michelle, so you're BRCA one carrier, zero family history of breast cancer, with a very favorable polygenic risk score, like in the lowest tenth percentile. Um, you know, you could have down to about a third in their paper uh, risk, which was uh, pretty similar to what we saw. I mean, even if you remember those uh, kind of uh, diagrams that I showed in the beginning that Holly brought up. Um, you know, so so there's clearly a wide range. Um, you know, BRCA1. You know, at the worst, you know, with a family history of breast cancer, at the highest, you know, most unfavorable SNP profile. Yeah, you're, you know, here they had, you know, almost sixty percent, fifty-seven. So, you know, not quite a doubling of risk. Uh, which there's some argument that yeah, BRCA1 and two carriers just aren't quite as modifiable uh, for their breast cancer risk, which really gets at, you know, that you know, hey, the, the reason you got breast cancer with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation is, is largely because of that BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And then, you know, yeah, you know, your polygenic risk score may have influenced slightly, but probably not that much. Um, you know, whereas if you look at CHECK2, and this is, uh, again, what Dr. Peterson brought up, you know, eight, where ATM and CHECK2, some of these moderate risk genes, I mean, you start to see these pretty substantial swings. And I guess, you know, arguably the swings are similar. I mean, you have about a 20% swing, you know, here in BRCA1, you know, similar in BRCA2, but you at least have about a 30% swing in ATM and CHECK2. So, you know, the swing seems to be a bit bigger, Um, you know, having a very favorable polygenic risk score, no family history to, you know, having, uh, you know, unfavorable polygenic risk score with a substantial family history um, you know, and you could envision, yeah, we're, we're probably headed towards a future uh, where we maybe don't need to be, you know, if an ATM carrier walks in and has a very favorable polygenic risk score and no family history of breast cancer, I don't know, do they need, you know, the level of screening as this individual, you know, who arguably has a risk higher than a BRCA1 or 2 carrier with no family history um, and a favorable polygenic risk. So I think, I think we're going to start sorting you know this out um uh you know and the papers like these are really helping you know understand uh all of this so you know they showed um yeah there weren't you know this was a nice little figure in the paper uh it was a five-year absolute risk you know based on gene and polygenic risk so uh, yeah i encourage people to take a take a peek at this paper oh and while i do have my screen shared i did find this other paper on um the endocrine therapy, and this just came out as well. Uh, and I wonder if this set the stage a little bit, Holly, for the, uh, uh, Fergus's uh, work uh, in this area for the chemo prevention. So I, I was looking I just wanted
2: at- to say one other thing. I think it was about Michelle's comment with the nope. true negatives. Um, so, you know, I think for one clinically, I always, uh keep true negatives in our clinical practice and follow them once a year. Uh, you know, I think that for for those of you that are that are clinical, despite the the advice that they've returned to population risk, um, the life that they've led and the you know cancers that they've witnessed um, is such that um it really is difficult to believe that they're actually at population risk. So I think it's important to um, to really, you know, keep those patients in your clinics um, for reassurance, um, and you know, and keep in mind that they have another parent, and the polygenic risk score, you know, in an average risk population is going to substratify. Their risk, as it would in an average risk person, so you mm-hmm. know. Um, but but yeah, that that true negative um, emotional component, I think, is very powerful.
0: Yeah, and and it's similar in a way to um, you know even multi gene panel testing for those individuals, um, where you know I was always trained as you know you do point mutation testing. You know, if it's a no mutation in the family, you know, there's still. Clearly, uh, plenty of recommendations floating around in that regard. Um, However, you know, the field, you know, some individuals do still like uh, getting a multi-gene panel on these uh, folks just to make sure that, yeah, I mean, even if you test negative, For the point mutation that's floating around the family, uh, like we're discussing here, I mean, there's clearly other, you know, a whole set of genes coming in from the other parent um, and, you know, making sure there's sometimes not a concomitant check 2 mutation floating around on the other side of the family or whatever it may be. Um, And, you know, PRS is kind of the similar argument in that regard where, yeah, just making sure that there's, you know, kind of using all the genomic information you can essentially to uh, give a good accurate uh, uh, risk prediction. I you know I, I don't want to belabor the conversation with the chemo uh, uh, prevention paper so I I put I'm gonna put in the chat here it's uh, but it just came out uh, cancer prevention research and it's just looking at it just took uh, women that uh, had polygenic risk score and looked at their willingness to undergo chemo prevention uh, and essentially it just shows that yeah if you had a high polygenic risk score you were just a little bit more you know kind of motivated to do chemo prevention.
1: I did wanna point out in the chat, Shelly did share a really interesting paper. um, I'm just looking at it on my other screen here by Yanes, just talking about women's responses to understanding PRS information. And I wasn't sure if Dr. Peterson, you could maybe share your experience in clinic with how patients receive the information, positive, negative, um, and how that's been. You're muted.
2: You've really hit on something that's incredibly important, and that's the communication of risk information. And that's something that we all do every day, you know, with highly penetrant genes and moderately penetrant genes. But I think as we move forward, you know, particularly with uh, Olympia and with ASBRS recommending that surgeons test all patients. You know, we're going to need to not only outline, you know, guidelines for providers who are counseling patients, but um, but help providers in their communication of this information to patients. And I think that that's a topic in and of itself. That that I'm actually. Working on with uh, our head of psychology at Cleveland Clinic to try to, you know, look into into that that field of of communication of risk information because I think that we're going to need we're going to need to help providers across the board do that. You know, it's it's something that we refine over time. Those of us who do it every day, but. Uh, a lot more people are gonna be doing this, and you know so I think that there can be tools that can be helpful to uh to help people communicate
0: mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely
1: yeah, I would say it's definitely a challenge and and I hope that you do some research and and have a publication because it was something it's something I think that we would definitely share i at least would share with others because there is this hesitancy. Um, And I think at first, uh, some providers assume the role of the patient and say, well, they're anxious, they don't know how to deal with the information. But I do agree, it's the way that it's presented and something's not presented in a certain way or confidently, then that's transferred to the patient. And um, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, with a lot of different provider types. It's not just one. Um, Of course, it doesn't help that, you know, NCCN and other bodies have not been a hugely supportive of is So it kind of muddies the water a little bit. Uh, it would be helpful, I think, for a lot of people to have something to lean on and say, well, NCCN says XYZ and this is why we say XYZ. Um, but I don't think that that's going to happen for a little bit or, or maybe, well, you know. you know what? I think because of Olympia, I think it's mm-hmm. going to
2: happen by next week. You know, I think that there oh, will be-
0: BRCA one and two, then, So for
2: breast... early stage ER positive, you know, mm-hmm. HER2 negative breast cancer, I think that medical oncologists just because of the, you know, it it would it would overwhelm the genetic counselors of America instantly if yeah. they mm-hmm. all counseled all of those patients uh, in terms of uh, of you know the ability to to take elaborate
0: and so yeah. we probably um, should just uh, I don't know if any if a lot of people probably haven't heard of that study so I can you know I can have you give it yeah a go ahead
2: topic, and and, re- and review it TJ. yeah
0: just for just for people that haven't heard so it's uh definitely look into it uh it was just presented at ASCO it's called Olympia with a capital a at the end um and it was uh just published in gosh
2: new england.
0: new england journal yes there's also a uh tumor um uh, paper that's going to be coming out as well, uh, looking at uh, just the uh, germline, uh, the tumor status. But the, essentially, it was uh, looking at well over 1,000 BRCA1 1 and 2 carriers. And then you got your uh, standard uh, you know, treatment of your breast cancer, adjuvant chemotherapy. And then the only difference was uh, you either went on placebo or you went on um, laparib uh for a year. And then it looked at the overall outcomes. And um, it, the much better survival um, and um, in the alaparib arm uh just looked much better uh, uh having you know being disease free. Uh so it was a very positive study overall, uh showing that yeah, if you have a BRC one or two mutation, you probably do get massive benefit uh from a PARP inhibitor, even after you're you know, presumably you know, treated with your first line uh, chemotherapy. So it's, it's really using uh, elaborative in this case in the uh, maintenance setting. Uh, and these yeah. were women with mostly stage two and three breast cancers. I should also throw that in and all HER2 negative.
2: Yeah, so so adjuvant as opposed to metastatic, you know, oh, is man. really the, you know, the, the distinction. And so many women are going to want to know, you know, up front. And so I think that providing um, Providing the ways in which we can uh, help the medical oncology commu- community com- communicate that to those patients will help everybody in the end. And I think it's yeah. going to be a slam dunk by necessity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least for a HER2 negative, I would think. I mean, you know, and I mean, at, at bare minimum for people that meet, you know, Olympia inclusion criteria. I would think. So but just I, mean, I mean I mean just know.
2: the necessity to help providers right. with that communication. That's what yeah. I mean.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, great. Um, we're we're getting near time. Any other uh questions? Um
2: Are you gonna to leave it, the chat up or how do you get how, how do you access the
0: chat? Yeah, great question. Um because I, I haven't been clicking on the papers. Yeah. Um uh well i'll Probably send a follow-up
1: if you want tj i mean i can we have access to the chat we can um click the links that are in here and we can send a follow-up anybody see. who's interested okay
0: yeah we this was a very very paper heavy myriad Ecology yeah. live today i actually yeah. just cut and pasted it uh the chat which is i'll shoot you an email uh holly but yeah it looks like anybody can cut and paste the chat so there's about oh. 30 papers in there so if anyone yeah. wants the if anyone wants to just spend their weekend reading about uh, polygenic risk scores in Olympia,
2: Besides <laughs> there you me, go. Man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, well, thanks again. Yeah, Michelle, uh, I see. Uh, I love PRS, and so excited about it. <laughs> so, thanks, Michelle. Um, well, I just want to say, uh, you know, thank you to Holly uh, so much for coming on. That was excellent uh, discussion today. We went through a lot of material. You see that, you know, a lot of this material is like literally months old, weeks old. I mean, we showed a paper that came out yesterday. So, you know, this is a very fast moving field. I mean, polygenic risk score is on fire right now, you know, from from a research standpoint, from a figuring out how to get this into clinical utility. And, you know, going back to kind of what I showed uh, in the beginning from Shelly, I mean, it's not just breast cancer, you know, this is happening in you know, colon, uh, you know, prostate, you know, beyond cancers, you know, people are looking at cardiovascular disease, you know, um, neuro diseases, uh, diabetes, even so you're, you're gonna the, the world of genetics is uh, moving very rapidly into uh, polygenic risk score for a lot of these multifactorial conditions. So I'm just uh, proud to be part of it. And, uh, you know, Holly, thank you for doing uh, your good work. And, uh, you know, well, and I think
2: that the the NIH committing 38 million to studying PRS really speaks to uh, its importance right now as well. And thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everybody. And uh, yeah, come on next week. All Uh, We're going to have a really uh, good discussion on cancer survivorship. So look forward to seeing people. Music